0: Hey, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Scott Linden here. Glad you could join me. We'll be going back to the um, Minneapolis uh, Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic in a few minutes. Talk with a good friend of mine, Eric Thompson from my NAVDA club and now um, becoming more of an expert wild bird hunter in Montana of all places. Yeah, just like you and me. We all want to go there, don't we? Well, we'll get a debrief on that. And we'll also talk wild chuckers and some hunting strategies, among other things. Plus, the way Eric approaches bringing on new hunters with his organization. So stick around if any of that is of interest to you. But that's not all. We'll be covering a whole bunch of other things, including our Handle It segment. Yeah, we are going to talk about why you should talk when your dog hits a point. Sometimes it's the best idea. See if you don't agree. And we'll also talk about... whether you've ever used a pro for a su- substantial amount of your dog's training. I think you might re- be surprised at the results of that recent survey in the Upland Nation Insights newsletter. So stick around. You'll you'll probably learn more than one or two things today right here at the Upland Nation podcast, brought to you by Sage and Breaker Gun Care products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, Trulock Choke Tubes, MidwayUSA.com, Joy Dog Food, and FindBirdHuntingSpots.com. Yeah, always uh, fascinated by uh, the results of those uh, newsletter polls that I do. And I thank you all for participating. Sure, appreciate that. And uh, probably should ask you about that newsletter in general at some point. But right now, the topic is, have uh, you ever used a professional trainer with one of your dogs? And I, I mean, for a substantial part of it. I mean, we've all worked with a pro in one way or another. I've never sent a dog off for training, per se. But um, believe it or not, 38.5% of you have. And I'm I'm intrigued by that because I understand... Some of us, uh, you know, whether it's family, work situation, whatever, we just don't have the time to bring on a young dog or maybe a dog that needs polishing in certain areas. So it makes all the sense in the world to me, but I'm frankly a little surprised at the number. Yeah, more than one third of us are doing that. The other two thirds... It's all DIY for us, so um, whether that's the right idea or not is another question, Um, but that's why we talk about these sort of things every day, every time two dog people get together and have three opinions on any specific topic. So um, if you're not doing it, please take the poll from now on at the newsletter. If you're not getting the newsletter, go to findbirdhuntingspots.com and sign up. Glad to have you with us. Speaking of dog training, yeah, here's one where I probably should have used a pro. Um, I mentioned that Flick has, has basically been trained to retrieve everything at the same distance, as far as I can throw a bumper or a dead bird. Well, we're working on extending that, and I finally realized, yeah, yeah, practicing what I preach and that is breaking it down into little pieces. The first one, He needs to be able to, number one, see the bumper fly. But he also needs to see exactly where it lands. So we can't do that out in the back 40 because the brush is too high. So we're doing it in, luckily, we have a really long gravel driveway. So we're putting him at one end and putting the uh, bird launcher at the other end and throw in bumpers so that he can see the whole trajectory of the flight and then even when it bounces and lands he can still see it so right now the only objective is to acquaint him with varying distances usually farther than i can throw a bumper yeah if you're developing a dogs retrieving word to the wise <clears throat> vary the distance if that means a helper or if you got a bird launcher or other ways to do it you know you retriever guys use a whole bumper pile and you probably easily vary that distance but whatever it is make sure you're not teaching your dog to go 25 yards and no farther enough said we're brought to you in part by Pointer Shotguns. <laughs> yeah, I just got myself another side-by-side with case coloring. Boy, is it nice. And they are flying off the shelves at your favorite retailers. So check out the entire list of local nearby dealers at PointerShotguns.com. Now, this case coloring is fascinating. The one I got, first off, the entire receiver all the way down to the tang and the trigger guard. They're all case colored. And a beautiful, you know, for lack of a better term, in the music business, you play a mandolin with uh, with that tiger maple back. You know, those stripey kind of looks. That's what this particular case coloring looks like. It's pretty cool. They're also preparing to put out these side-by-sides in a nickel and several other Case, I'm not not case coloring, uh, several other Sarah um, coatings. So check out all the new colors, all the new models uh, 12 gauge, 20 gauge in the side by side. It's all at pointershotguns.com. And if you're looking to switch dog foods, take a look at joydogfood.com. These folks have been in business for over 75 years. You learned a little bit about the organization from Josh Michaelis last week. Uh, Family owned and operated 100% American made ingredients. And a number of uh, formulas for high-performance dogs, and those are fixed formulas. There's no swapping out ingredients when they run low on one or get a cheaper price on another. It's consistently the same batch after batch. Find a local feed store that, uh, that distributes it for you. Go to joydogfood.com and enjoy your dog's performance. Here at the uh, National Pheasant Fest and uh, Quail Classic, I'm Scott Linden with uh, Upland Nation Podcast. And finally, finally, we have to get connected again with our friend Eric Thompson. Eric's got so much going on, I'm just going to let you start on this one, Eric. Welcome to the podcast. What's new in your life since you left Central Oregon and moved to God's country?
1: Well, it was hard to leave... uh god's country yeah and i moved to god's country yep. and it just uh keeps getting better we're all settled in now in watching pheasants out my back door and out my office window i can't i can't complain too much on that
0: do not rub that in
1: <laughs> i try not to i don't yep. send too many pictures out. yeah, yeah exactly and I, <laughs> I have
0: noticed that thank you but it must be incredible tell me tell me what you are learning to like most about montana you had a hunting
1: season there basically Huh? You would think that I had a hunting season. <laughs> I was there, yeah. and I hunted, but I did not have a hunting season. We had some uh, a little turmoil in our season right oh, off yeah. the bat from November, and Hex was out of the commission oh, no. through most of December. We caught the last two days of the season and got some huns to okay. finish off the season. But, yeah, she got sick and oh, man. dogged down. Yeah, and We just didn't have the recovery time to get anything out. Oh, How is she now? She is spry as can be, back right. on fire. Great. <laughs> Took an emergency spay to get her there, but... Oh, wow. It wasn't what we wanted, but it was what we needed.
0: Okay, well, good for you. We lost the last two weeks of the season to a barbed wire fence,
1: oh. so... Uh I I feel for you. I feel for you on the barbed wire fence. That's how Daphne wound up with bad knees. She got hung up in a barbed wire fence. No
0: kidding. Off mic, we'll talk about how barbed wire affects knees, except in that gougy kind of way. Wow. So uh, what is it about Montana that you really like? I mean, why
1: would you go pull up stakes and go all the way over there? Well, if you ask Melissa, it would be because of the wind. She thinks I just love the wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But no, it... It's one of the most beautiful places out there, and having spent my entire life in Oregon and explored Oregon so thoroughly and being very comfortable in Oregon, I'm always looking for that next challenge. Now I have different species, different environments, different habitats, things that I have to learn. I'm so excited for spring and summer rolling around for me to get out and get into the landscape and just explore what i need to know for the next season yeah you know you
0: just use that word and it it is so true uh you started in western oregon and you were to a degree a duck hunter if you want to call it that and then you were over in central oregon with us and and then you were you know from there we're all going points east from there to find whatever we want to shoot at and now you've gone way easter and found uh what favorite species or can you narrow it down
1: Right now, I really love running sharp tails. Yeah. Because it's a different bird. You can have them, they can walk out on you like a chucker. They are very, they can hold fast and be very good targets and good teachers to a dog. Yeah. Uh, Second was probably pheasant because everybody loves a good pheasant, but I don't really need to focus on them. And of course, there's always that elusive chucker. Yeah. And Montana has them, so I got them. You know, at some
0: point, we will talk about that in a way that won't clue everybody else into the one spot in Montana that has chuckers, <laughs> but I'm intrigued by that idea, and it might be uh, one of two remaining states where I haven't chased them. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so I'll share those spots with you as well. Um, you're there because you can be, and I'm glad for it. I'm glad Melissa is semi-happy except for the wind. Um, Beyond that, it, you know, because we can work remotely from anywhere, anytime, you've got a lot on your plate uh, besides the hunting aspect of things. Tell me a little bit about uh, what you're doing in the
1: world of hardwired outdoors. Oh, we are trying to expand hunting and hunting access to people who just don't have the inlet. And I'm saying inlet on purpose because there are barriers to people coming into the sport, and they can be quite extensive barriers because you don't have a dog, that's a pretty good barrier. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a gun, that's a good barrier. If you don't know where to start in Mm -hmm. those worlds, so getting those people up to speed and getting them into the outdoors in this capacity that they feel most comfortable. I had a conversation earlier this morning where we talked about how I do that, and It is a evaluation to start with. Okay. What we're doing is I need to meet you. We need to meet up. We need to make sure, talk about what you want, what you're capable of doing. And let me assess whether you are actually a good person to move forward in this program. And most people are. But if you don't have uh, an inborn sense of responsibility, that is a big red flag. And one thing that I look out for so far, knock on wood, we have had great uh, outcomes with mentoring people into the outdoors, and they have become stalwart hunters and good stewards of the land, and that's what we want to continue to do.
0: I, I love the word inlet as opposed to outlet, let alone as opposed to identifying barriers. Um, it, but it's got to be tough, because it sounds like to a great degree it's on a one-on-one basis, at least to begin with. Tell me more about the process itself. So.
1: It's helpful to partner with other organizations Mm -hmm. because I have knowledge. I have knowledge to share. I have these things to give. They have the people who need it. I don't have the time to go out and find all the individuals that need to, that want to uh, come into the outdoors. But when we have organizations that are finding these people who want to come into the outdoors, I can do it in group settings. I can do it in one-on-ones. I have a lot of options at that point. And so I have partnered with... uh, Minority Outdoor Alliance and Hunters of Color in finding recruits to go into the outdoors. And I'm looking to expand that and take it a little further for those people who have taken that journey. They found that they like the outdoors, but once again, we have that mental block and barrier in thinking that going out of state is going to be too prohibitive for yeah. me to do it. And I'll never get that done unless somebody's there to show me.
0: Yeah. You know um, that's the other thing. first before I forget, uh, if somebody wants to learn more about the organization, what's the website address uh, hardwiredoutdoors.com hardwiredoutdoors.com Go there and learn more about it. but the the organization itself, so I know those groups, and I, I know they're doing a great job out there. What of, of all the and I will use the term barriers of all the barriers out there, I, I always look at it as, well, if you don't want to own a dog. Then get out of my face because the dog is why we go. But there are other things that affect somebody's willingness and ability to do this. And we're not just talking about bird dogs and bird hunting either, are we? No. So, so what are the bigger challenges? And how can we, as avid participants, help somebody maybe overcome those?
1: The biggest challenge for people is actually knowledge. It has nothing to do with anything material. It's all mental. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have that generational exposure like I fortunately did. And they don't have the resources to find those individuals because they see these spaces as being divided off. Because these people over here hunt, I don't hunt. How do I get in and hunt? I'm not gonna go talk to them because people are inherently not wanting to meet new people unless there's something that they have in common. And yeah. finding those people who are willing to help and teach you can be very daunting. Yeah.
0: I, I I wrote once and I'm writing a little bit again now in another story on a topic that's kind of related. And that is, here we are, you and me, we're crazy about this stuff. We love it. We live it. We eat it. We breathe it. Uh, sometimes to the point where we feel like we have blinders on. And so so when you go to work on Monday morning and somebody says, what was your weekend like? And they hear us, blah, 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 or the other way around. We have to look for, for signs. If somebody comes up and says, Eric, what'd you do this? I went chuck hunting. Really? Tell me all about it. Or what was the fun part? Or what, would the, what does the dog do? Those are those are Telltales that might help us identify somebody and and take them another step
1: further do you could you see other things like that that we might be able to do it's funny that you mentioned that because my famous line is that i curate my friends yeah and i curate my friends by exposing them to my incessantly talking about bird dogs and bird hunting and bird dog training and if you stick around you're somebody who's going to like that. And if you're not doing it already, I know you're interested and we're just going to go right on with life. It's going to be great. If you leave, I'm like, oh, that person didn't, I didn't need that person yeah. to be around because they don't care about bird dogs. I
0: joke about it. I say, if they ask to see the pictures on your phone after that talk, then, then, maybe, then maybe we ought to acquaint them with a shotgun. Uh, but that that brings up so many other things. And, and And, you know, the funny part is I joke about it too much, but, you know, the best way to start bird hunting is find a buddy with a good bird dog and, and try it. And if, if your spine tingles when that dog hits a point or the adrenaline rush takes over your entire corpus when the bird flies, yeah, maybe someday you could buy a shotgun or borrow a shotgun. You know, all these things. People forget that if you, if you know an avid bird hunter in particular... He's got more than one gun, and he'll be glad to lend it to you. He's probably got a dog, maybe that one that's barking. <laughs> and he probably knows where to go. Are Are you willing to take people to some of those places?
1: Oh, I am. That is yeah. part of the teaching process. Yeah. And you say that, find a buddy with a bird dog. Yeah. Hex has been my best ambassador yeah. over these last five years. Yep. Because she comes in, she's friendly, she's happy. People are really interested in her because she looks unique with her nice little wire-haired-pointing griffon eyes and face. And then they are when we start talking about bird dogs, and then they're like, well, well, do I really want to try this? Can I go out? Can I see this? I had a friend. She's wonderful. She already owns griffs. Took her out. She absolutely loves it. Trying to get her that shotgun in her hand, we're really close, and I think we're going to get it done this year. But having that dog be that ambassador taking that dog out in the field and walking people through what that dog is doing and when you notice the connection between you and your dog and you're like oh she's getting birdie she's onto something they're like well how do you know and i'm like well you watch for these signs and when she goes on point when she's still flagging because she's just at the tip of the scent cone or when she's stock still because the birds are right there and me explaining this all the way through and i love doing that and i don't care if i miss shots because yeah. i'm explaining things right i've 42 years. 42 years of shooting birds. I've shot enough. I can explain a little bit before I do it.
0: You know, and I I think there is a point uh, that we all get to, and I'll use the fly fishing analogy because someday I'll actually write the bird hunting version of it. But when you take up fly fishing, you spend the first year trying to catch any fish. Any fish. And I don't care. Carp, sucker, doesn't matter. The second year, uh, you want to catch a big fish. Then you want to catch a lot of fish. Then you don't care if you catch any fish. And it might be four years or it might be 40 years. But do you think you're a better teacher now that you're at that stage in in your bird hunting career?
1: Yes, I am. Because I am more focused on the process than I am on the outcome. Yeah. And translating that process from myself to another person, I'm more dedicated to that that I am getting out there and finding that bird, shooting that bird, putting that bird in the cooler.
0: Yeah, well, you're in good company. Um, I interview a lot of industry uh, leaders, presidents of the companies, and I ask them a similar question. I say, what do you like most about hunting? And they say, teaching other people to hunt.
1: Yeah, it's the best. Yeah.
0: We're going to carry on this conversation after a quick break. We're here at Pheasant Fest and the Quail Classic. Uh, We're in Minneapolis on the floor of the show with Eric Thompson. HardwiredOutdoors.com is where you learn more about this organization and what he's doing and how you might be able to kind of pick up a few tips on how to get somebody started there. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. We'll be back right after this. Also coming up later in the podcast, our handle it segment, why you should speak up when your dog falls silent and points. Yeah, sometimes that's the best idea. At least according to me, you can decide for yourself after you hear my rationale. But first off, let me remind you that Mid Valley Clays and Shooting School is your browning shotgun central you name it, they got it. And if they don't have it, I know. I've talked to their friends at Browning. They got a direct pipeline so they can get some of those more, uh, more difficult to find models of Browning shotguns. They're also your sub gauge supplier. If you need a fix and it's below a 12 gauge, well, they've got it at Mid Valley Clays and Shooting School. Some great guns out there, all available at Mid Valley Clays. Com. And by the way, if you're in the neighborhood, their new ZZ Bird uh, uh, range is now open. Some people call it Helis ZZ Bird. It is the incredible, almost v- weird, weirdly similar to Flying Bird targets you can shoot. Um, limited hours, they got to staff it differently, but learn more about it at midvalleyclays.com. And after a great session at Mid Valley Clays, go to sageandbreaker.com. Make sure you get all your gun cleaning and care, tools, consumables, and of course, transport items. Whether it's it's a new case for your shotgun or a cleaning mat. Soon the new range bags will be back in stock. They just flew off the shelves. And then some instructional videos that I think everybody should look at. If you got an over-and-under, go to their website, sageandbreaker.com, and watch the video on cleaning the Browning Satori shotgun. It's an over-and-under, and and if you watch that one, you'll probably figure out how to do any other over-and-under as well. It's all there at sageandbreaker.com. All right, welcome back, Eric Thompson. We've gotten a lot of the, uh, you know, kind of the uh, the formalities out of the way here. Hardwiredoutdoors.com is where you learn more about that. But we want to talk a little bit more about some of the stuff that you and I really enjoy, and and, and so many people are intrigued with it's, uh, and that is the the whole chucker hunting um, cult. <laughs> And I was just talking to a boot company about um, bighorn hunters. They're the only crazier cult than chucker hunters. (laughs) And and, and I love it. You love it. But why do you love it so much?
1: It's a challenge. Yeah. And if you have the teeniest bit of competitive spirit within you, (laughs) you are facing down the weather, the birds, the habitat, and... Everything's against you, and to triumph over all adversity and get a bird, yeah, <laughs> is, yeah. is the pinnacle of a hunt.
0: I guess. I guess snowcock might be harder, but yeah. who's going to do that? <laughs> I was going to, I almost booked a trip, uh, to do a TV show about snowcock. And he said, well, first we ride horses to 10,000 feet. Then we walk to 12,000 feet and then we sit around and wait for them to fly past. Uh, I don't have the patience or the ability to do any of those things, but I do still have the chance to climb some of those mountains and get up to Chucker level. Um, What are the biggest, besides being in shape, and and that is, I mean, uh, that's my only reason for working out, what what are some of the other challenges that somebody faces, especially as a beginner in that area?
1: Uh, The biggest challenge, I think, for beginners is knowing what they're looking for. If you don't have a sense of the habitat that you need to find, you can walk those hills for days and never find a thing.
0: Yeah, so you can't leave it at that. What are some of the things to look for?
1: Uh, I was thinking about that as I was saying it, and I remember driving one time down the Deschutes, and I'm looking up the hill, and I'm like, man, that looks like Chucker country. I saw the teeniest of green patches, Uh and I'm like, there's water up there, and there's nice cover because we were right at the rim rock. There was a ridge that they could break over and off of, and I'm like, I'm going to walk up there. We took the time. We walked up there, the people I was with. They got to see chuckers. They didn't shoot any. They got to see them, but yeah. they didn't get any shots.
0: I think I know that patch.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You talk about the chucker cult, and I can look at some things and be like, I "Yeah, I know exactly where you're at. <laughs> yeah, you know, even
0: without, uh, what do they call it, geotagging, uh, sometimes geotagging.
1: it just looks
0: really familiar. Oh. Um but that is another aspect of this whole thing, and I want to belabor it for just a moment because you and me are way more alike. We are brothers from another mother, and I mean that. I'll tell you more about what I mean by that later. But um, I'm willing to share a lot of spots. Now, if somebody else takes me to their spot, I'm not going to share that with somebody else beyond somebody else. But for the most part, that's. I thought that would be the first uh, challenge you'd mention. Was uh, nobody tells me where to start. So I guess in the broadest sense, you did cover that start in country you think is good and then look for these components. And the only one I would add to that is for the most part, although some pros will argue this with me, cheatgrass is an integral part of a chucker's lifestyle. Not always and not in all places, but in many places, that
1: might be something else to add to the list that you're going to look for. You, would you agree with that? I would agree with that, especially late season. Yeah. When everything else is gone. Yeah. Cut a crop. It's just nice little green grass shoots because that's the first thing that's coming up.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. That's why they call it grass. It cheats out everything else. Right. But what we're talking about is the, the birds will eat the seed heads, the seeds, much of the year. But in the fall, and once the rain starts coming, those seeds that were left after the chuckers ate so many of them, they sprout, they germinate, and they start growing, and they become a really valuable food source for those chuckers and others too. I found, I found cheatgrass shoots in, in quail, uh, valley quail, mountain quail, and even in huns once in a while. So that's the other one. Um, Beyond that, you mentioned water. You mentioned uh, a type of cover. We were talking about rocks of one sort or another. And then I found them in in, uh,
1: sage, and especially on windy days. Do you find them holing up in the sagebrush? So I've found them in sage on multiple occasions, and especially big... I always like to call old growth sage. Yeah. That yeah. You, where you expect to find sage grass, but we don't have sage grass in the areas where I'm finding the chuckers. Nope. But yes, I find them in the sage, not necessarily on windy days only. Yeah. I've come through there and it's one patch that I always work. If I see some, I work it. And my windy days, my bad weather days, it's all about finding where that wind slacks off. Yeah. And that's what I look for on those cold days, getting the sunshine, getting them out of the weather. Just like us. Everybody wants to stay warm. They want to stay warm. They want to stay happy. Yeah. They want to stay comfortable.
0: South-facing slopes, uh, the leeward side of, rid- side of ridges will get them out of that wind just like a good grove of old-growth sagebrush yep. will. I found the same thing. The other thing that I found, and I and I actually want to bet on closing weekend in Nevada this year, uh, that we were finding nothing anywhere else. Uh, part of it was there was snow everywhere. The other part was... Um, they thought they had spots, and usually those spots did have birds, but they didn't this time. But I said, well, let's go to this spot because of all those factors, plus there were bowls, saddles, and other flat spots once you got up to that elevation. And I don't know what it is about those. Do you, you got a guess on any of that? I really
1: don't. I just know how it translates. Yes. Because it translates out to, like, sharp tail. If yeah. I see yeah. a bowl, that's oh. where I'm going. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's where I find them. So, once again, you're correct. When I find a bowl out there, I think it's very much protection. Plus, they have the height and they got visibility. They can spot what's coming at them, and they take advantage of it. Yeah.
0: I have a buddy who says uh, those birds will hold for a pointing dog, too. If the cover is high enough, they can't see the dog. Have you experienced anything in that regard? Because everybody thinks chuckers are very flighty birds, and they are quite often, especially when they're running up a bare volcanic lava (laughs) slope. But holding in the taller grass is something I have to hope for in the future, or is it? I
1: have not... Look, I have not focused on that. Yeah. So I was trying to think back. I know I was down in the Oahe's and some taller grass. And getting birds out of it, they were holding pretty nicely. But I've also had birds hold in a completely burned out section yeah. of hill that yeah. was nothing but bare dirt and rock. And I could not see 12, 15 birds hunkered down. And my dog's on point. And I'm like, where are these birds? And they're probably... 10, 12 feet in front of her.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear you You have that same problem. I'm colorblind. I blame it on that. You can't blame <laughs> it on that, I don't think. But they do. They are, well, in a lot of ways, they're kind of ash burnt color sometimes, depending on where you are. You know, I killed a bird. I actually killed three birds in a situation like that once. And you know what they're eating? Toasted chucker seeds. Huh. I'm, I said chucker seeds. Well, if only it was that easy. Those would be called eggs in the real <laughs> world. Toasted cheatgrass seeds.
1: I knew what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, but <laughs> maybe it's
0: nobody else. Boy, what a dope he is. That's what they're saying right now. Uh, it, and it, it was just mind-boggling to me to see that as, as, as a food source. But in that area, they didn't have much else. Yeah. So go figure. You know, if you had to give us one more bit of advice about chucker hunting, and and uh, whether it was shooting, getting in shape, we you know, or anything else, you've seen enough newcomers, and uh, and I have been a newcomer my entire career in this. What would you tell people to do or not do, for that matter?
1: I think the biggest surprise for newcomers, yeah. is the speed at which everything happens. Tell me more. There's. It's not a pheasant. Yeah. It's not a sharp tail. It's not a sage crush. You're not going to get that nice lift off, let them get up to the apex of their uh, parabola <laughs> and, uh, uh, and that parabolic arch there and yeah. take your shot. You're not going to do that. Yeah. How many, how many other birds, besides huns sometimes, do you shoot swinging left to right, right to left, but shooting downhill at a bird? of your shots are going to be downhill at that bird, if not more. And that is a hard thing to do, and it's very surprising when you have an explosion of birds coming up and they're not just flying out like those uh, clays that you've been shooting all week, and they're going in different directions, and they're diving over these hills as fast as they can. People freeze. 90% of the time on a first hunt, they never fire a shot for the first few uh, (laughs) covey rises because they're just so shocked at the actual speed and I want to say violence because yeah. I think they're out to get me. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Lifts.
0: Or at least they're out to frustrate you. Um, one of the one of the first pieces of advice I got was always hunt with a buddy. And if you're smart, make the buddy go higher than you. You get a little bit ahead of him and side heel the whole way. So when he... Sh- he flushes the birds, and they fly downhill. You got, an, you got a, um, what I'd call, I'd call it like a driven pheasant shoot. <laughs> and I actually shot a bird like that a couple seasons ago, the only one. I was on both knees, uh, and they still hurt. But, you know, that is actually some advice that I give some people sometimes. If your dog is actually pointing a covey of chuckers, try and get below the dog and maybe below where you think the covey is. So at least it's uh, a little bit less of a downhill mm-hmm. shot. Have you ever experienced success doing that? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I, I usually get one, a double on that. Yeah. If it's late in the season, I'm super frustrated and I put my uh, over and under away and I got my automatic out. Yeah. Man, doubles are pretty common in that situation. Uh, the ones that get me are, you were talking about being down and away from your partner that's hunting, but when they flush one and a chucker doesn't do what it's supposed to. So your body has this muscle memory of shooting these chuckers in fast and furious, uh, explosive, downhill flushes. And this chucker decides it's gonna fly uphill around you. Yeah. And now your body is not positioned. It's even in a worse position because you're already side hill. Your footing is off. You're not getting that foot out in front of you like you should. It's ugly. Everything you shoot's gonna be ugly. But now you're spinning around backwards looking over your shoulder trying to shoot. And that was I was at an event one time and uh they were teaching new people how to shoot. And the instructor was like, hey, you want to shoot? And I was like, yeah. He's like, let me see you shoot, see if I can tighten you up on anything. I was like, perfect. And he threw the first clay, and I shot it, and bam. And he looked at me, and he was like, man, your, your shooting style is ugly. Yeah. You can hit things, but it's ugly, and I'm a like, product of my environment. There you go. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> you know, I had exactly that scenario on the last day of the Nevada season this year. We, I was, for once in my life, in the right place at the right time. And sure enough, the one bird I might've had a shot at went up and around instead of down and around. Uh, but nobody else got a shot either, so I don't feel quite as bad, but it does happen that way. And only when, you're, only when you've given up too much altitude to begin with.
1: Exactly.
0: That is, of course, the number one mantra, never give up altitude. Uh, and that is because so often, Uh, And it was driven home again that weekend. Um, If you find birds at 6,200 feet, stay at 6,200 feet. Now, when you push birds out, they might go down, but they're going to hook back up. And if they don't fly back up to that elevation, they're probably going to run back up to that elevation and maybe higher.
1: You see that? Oh, absolutely. That's my... Every, I tell people all the time, hunt them where you find them. Yeah. If you have to be mid-slope, hunt them mid-slope. If you're lucky enough to be on the flat top, good yeah. for you. But, and that's how you talked about how they'll flush down and run back up. That's one of the benefits I love about chuckers because unless you are a five-time champion triathlete, there ain't a person in this world that's going to run down a covey of chucker. No. You're not going to hunt them to extinction. You're going to get that one, and then you're going to forget about it and go to the next one unless you're crazy.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. And if, and if you need to be humbled, uh, take up chucker hunting. Uh, heed all of the advice that Eric has given you. Uh, get in shape, and uh, we'll see you in the hills somewhere. And if you're looking for a spot, either of us might be willing to give you one or two of those to get started on. So Eric, uh, hardwiredoutdoors.com. Important to you. Yep. All right. Let's end with this. You were here at Pheasant Fest talking on a panel, I believe, or talking in front of an audience about what in particular was your topic.
1: My topic this time was hunting in the West Yeah, because it's such a valuable resource that we have available to us, and this is the perfect audience because most people that are here are from the Midwest, are from a little further east, and getting out west is hitting South Dakota, hitting North Dakota. We really get out west. We're going to hit the west side of South Dakota, North Dakota, but they're cutting off their uh, availability of further game by not moving into those far western states and some of the most beautiful habitat, territory, terrain, whatever you want to call it, from the Palouse all the way down to the breaks of the John Day or the Deschutes River, the Columbia River Gorge, the mountains of the Southern Cascades, the Northern Cascades of California, the stark Vistas of Utah and Nevada—all these things that people aren't experiencing. And one of the things I pointed out in each of those areas, if you it, the hunting is available for your level of experience. So if you want a hard hunt, if you want to hunt mountain quail, you want to get that trophy bird, but you want to put in the time and go 5,000 feet and get this bird off of some rare meadow up there—perfect. But if you want to do it at 200 feet, it can be done there too.
0: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and, and I've written on that topic a lot, and and I think one of the obstacles we talk about barriers again, is that the 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 even the look of the landscape is so foreign to many people. Um, it, you know, it's volcanic upthrust and the world's the, the country's tallest fault block mountain we're talking about. And and those imposing river canyons that are so deep um, that were formed largely by volcanic action. I mean, to a lot of people, I don't. Hey, I don't want to be anywhere near a volcano. I don't care how dormant it is, but it's things that are so different to everybody.
1: It is. And we had a friend come out from North Carolina one time. And we were actually hunting in Eastern Oregon out of the Blues, and he his first words after that first day's hunt was, "How do y'all hunt in all this deep dark timber?" And we we're like, <laughs> "Deep dark timber." He's like, "Yeah, it's so dark and you can't see anything." We're like, "This is nice and wide open." Yeah. So we'll hold on and we'll take you over to some deep dark timber and we'll let you see what that looks like. And you're correct; that is super daunting to see these giant mountains that you're going to be walking up and what's going to be up there and Where's Bigfoot?
0: <laughs> yeah. But we go on vacations to experience new things. And I guess if you're a bird hunter, you can, you can rationalize it that way. Don't let it intimidate you. There's like, like Eric said, the other thing, and I'm sure you touched on this in your presentation, uh, there is more land, more publicly accessible land in any one of those states that you talked about than in all the other states combined.
1: So I had a person talk to me about hunting 40 acre tracks <laughs> and that's what they were used to hunting 40 acre tracks and their dog works out at 50 yards at the max, maybe sometimes runs out to 70 yards because they only hunt 40 acre tracks and I'm like, we can find somewhere for you to hunt that is resembles 40 acre tracks except for the fact that you can walk for seven miles yeah. and when you're done. You can walk back the other seven miles. Just remember if you walk it, you gotta walk it back. And your dog can work in that fashion, but you're getting the experience, what I experience every day, the ability and the love that I can just walk into the landscape and go as far as I want. Yeah.
0: Let's let's end on this note because you and I both experience this stuff every day and you had some issues this year with your dog and so did I. What is the most important thing about, uh, about caring for, preparing for uh, a rough hunt on some of the land that you and I cover when it comes to your dog? What, what do you ensure that dog has done, is having done to it, to make sure that we're going to have as a safe and productive a hunt as that dog can deliver to us?
1: Uh, not taking off-duty or off-season training lightly. Yeah. Because we need to keep that conditioning up. These are high-value, high-energy athletes that we're dealing with. And you don't want to set them on the couch for six months, bring them rolling out, have them run up a hill and hurt themselves. Because they're covering three times as much ground as we are. And they're covering that same loose, shifting ground, potentially falling off of ledges or whatever it is. When they're running up there quick, they need to be able to adjust, adapt, and get back. Secondly... Keep my dog hydrated. That in Chucker Country, because we can run in October in 70 degrees and make sure that you are getting out early, taking care of your dog, watching your dog, making sure they're not getting too hot, and getting out early. If you only can hunt a half day, too bad, that's all we're going to hunt. We're going to hunt a half day because I'm not going to overheat my dog. And when wintertime comes around... Keeping that conditioning up, making sure you're watching your dog's paws, making sure they're not tearing things up on the ice, uh, ripping nails out on the ice. There's a whole host of obstacles that we face, but most of all, if we keep an eye on that dog, we understand that there's something wrong and we need to care for it immediately.
0: Yeah, I can't agree more. Uh, In fact, I'm just curious because I've I've seen uh, several brand new on the market uh, vests. Here we are at Pheasant Fest. And the first thing I look for is how much water can I cram into that thing? And uh, and for most people, I had this revelation not two weeks ago at the SHOT Show. For most people, it doesn't matter because they're doing the 40-acre tracts or whatever, or they're in a place where there's already water on the ground. How much water do you carry on, a uh, let's say, an all-day chucker hunt?
1: An average
0: amount of water for me
1: is three liters. Three liters. Yep, I have three big liter bottles. I yeah. have two big liter holders on the back, yeah. and then I throw an extra liter in the uh, bird bag. And yeah. then I have my water, which oh. I will give up yeah. for the dog yeah. if yeah. I need to. And plus, I throw an extra in for me. So most of my weight is water.
0: Yeah. It is, and for that, you need a a well-designed vest with a hip belt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. We could talk all day about this, but they're going to chase us out of here pretty soon here at Pheasant Fest in Minneapolis. It has been an incredible show for any number of reasons. And to finally get caught up with you, Eric Thompson,
1: hardwiredoutdoors.com, right? Correct, and you can find us also on Instagram at Outdoors. Hey, that's easy enough that's i wish nice i could have pulled that off
0: good <laughs> eric thompson thanks again next time i see you it'll be over there when i'm on my next sharp tail trip
1: so Perfect. uh forewarned is forearmed uh you know where i'm at and i'm always ready my motto is have dogs we'll travel ditto thanks a bunch
0: buddy <laughs> thank you well i sure wish him well and i hope to see him this fall when i head for montana Thanks again, Eric, for being part of the Upland Nation podcast and for doing such great work. We still have the Handle It segment on why you should not clam up when your dog slams a point. That'll be an interesting discussion to come. Um, But in the meantime, let me remind you, we're brought to you in part by TrulockChokes.com. Choke tubes for just about anything. If you're a turkey hunter, you already know. But if you're a bird hunter or a target shooter, you know, they make over 2,000 different shotgun chokes. And they're big into the sub-gauges, too. So um, no matter what you're shooting, if it's got a big hole at the end, they got it. If it's got a little hole at the end, they got that as well. And the joy of that is, as you well know, some of those sub-gauges are a little bit hinky when it comes to ballistics. Well, they have developed shotgun choke tubes that will help keep your pattern consistent. And... Um, maybe a little bit more accurate all right check them out at trulockchokes.com and midway usa is outfitting me these days midwayusa.com is where i'm getting just about everything from dummy launchers to boots they've got extremely competitive pricing and if they don't have it no one else does either most of their products ship free at midwayusa.com and You know, I've mentioned it before. I should mention it again. A lot of the videos I'm doing are only available at MidwayUSA.com. Some great stuff out there, including a comprehensive look at the tailgate exam. you got to scroll down all the way to the bottom, then click on Ambassadors, and then click on me and watch some of those, read some of the articles that have even more detail in them. You'll learn something. That's their goal at USA com yeah i'm pretty well, well trained when my dog uh, is told to stop i stop too it's just a weird habit and i'm working on it because that's part of the training process as well so it's a barrel or a gut hitch a place board a training table whatever you use to get your dog to hold a point now all of those are one way to do it and i i use them all But also at some point, a dog needs to understand that woe ultimately is an obedience command. And whether it's scent, sound, or you with your hand up or saying a word, they need to obey it. The problem is, unlike other obedience commands, when a dog does it right and holds still, we bite our tongue. That's great sometimes, and maybe some of you have had luck with that. But, you know, I don't think the right kind of praise when a dog is staying still is going to get the bird into the air or is going to cause the dog to break his point. It's all about degrees. So consider that. Dog hits a point, he's holding it for longer than he's ever held it before. Maybe a little stroke along the back, maybe a whispered good dog, or if you can, some other way to positively reinforce that dog might help him extend that point even longer the next time, or hold it while the bird flies, or hold it while the bird falls, because you, unlike me, actually hit the darn thing. So don't shut up when the dog slams the brakes. At least in training, and maybe even in the field. What's that? I can't hear you. Cat got your tongue? When the dog scents a bird? Think about it. And with that, I want to thank Eric Thompson for being a good friend of the Upland Nation podcast and a good friend, period. Hope to see you this fall, Eric. Thanks again for being part of the podcast. If you left a rating or a review, or if you commented at the social platforms, pay blue ribbon to all of you. I don't care what your dog did in the field. And thank you to our sponsors who make this all possible. Sage and Breaker, Pointer Shotguns, Joy Dog Food, Mid Valley Clays, and Trulock Chokes. And if you want to talk more, it's at the Facebook pages. Now on Instagram too, Scott Linden Wing Shooting. And of course, all that great useful information at findbirdhuntingspots.com. Sign up there for the newsletter as well. Hey, thanks again for listening. Appreciate that. Until next week, maybe I'll see you at the range. I'm Scott Linden. Be safe.